Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. I'm John Wheaton, your host. It's great to have you. The fun continues. I am very pleased to introduce my guest, Mr. John Skoke, architect with Macintosh Forest. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's great to have you. We had a rousing little pre-podcast discussion and uh, I'm looking forward to carrying that on. So our audience occasionally gets to hear from the architect and the architects are really at the top of the food chain when it comes to expressing the vision of the owner or the culture surrounding the building. And so it's a privilege for us to talk to you and those you represent. Uh, we've had some other solid and esteemed architects on the show and I like to mix that in so that people can get more of the understanding, the perspective, because a lot of times, sometimes the trade subcontractor or the contractor or the suppliers are going, what in the world are these architects thinking? And so we want to make sure we're respectful of the vision and the mindset, because in the end, um, that's what we're all trying to work to achieve is to satisfy the, the architecture. So thanks for being here. Tell us who you are. Um, I want to introduce you, but who you are, where you're from, what your background is, et cetera. Yeah, um, there's a lot there. So I'll try to give you a quick version so we can jump into a good conversation. But uh, I'm John Skoke. I'm a principal and partner now with Macintosh Forest Associates. Uh, we're we're about a 20-person growing architecture firm uh, with the interior design and some master planning um, uh, aspects to what we do at our firm. And I'm partners with Michael Porras, one of the founding partners of the firm. Uh, Doug McIntosh, unfortunately, passed away several years ago. Um, but I, I started at the firm about 21 years ago, and I've been working with Michael um, and all sorts of other folks that have kind of come in and out of the firm and other partner architecture firms as well. Um, and it's been a, it's been a great time. It's something I've really enjoyed and grown from a early design level all the and principal kind of leader of, of the firm. And, um, kind of before that, uh, which is really kind of a shorter period, but, uh, I've always been from Michigan, uh, Metro Detroit area, kind of at the northern end of the metro area, uh, bordering on kind of rural um, county living, and uh, really had an opportunity to, you know, get into the city. Went to school at Detroit Mercy, which is a city-based um, architecture school. It's now the School of Architecture and Community Design, and uh, really enjoyed my time there. Got my bachelor degree there and really wanted to move into practice, truly. Um, very focused in that. Uh, the making of architecture was really key to a lot of things that I was interested in. I like to work with my hands. I learned a lot of different aspects of what goes into building and making, and whether that was woodworking and joinery or working on an electrical crew or sheet metal contractor, uh, landscaping. I always was trying to find different opportunities to sponge in things that went um, together with building and, and ultimately how design could be influenced by that and how you learn from things that are made. Um, so that education uh, at Detroit Mercy and the work like jumping in and getting my hands dirty, getting things built was really key. And uh, this firm really gave me that opportunity to do it. And uh, it's still a smaller firm. Um, so we get to do a lot of things and wear a lot of hats. Um, and so that was the opportunities within this firm and kind of how it grew uh, and contracted and then grew again uh, was something I got to kind of ride those waves and but all the time really pursuing, you know, quality design uh, and, and having opportunities to practice architecture and see things get built. Uh, um, thanks for that. Uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, I have to admit, I didn't know anything about Detroit Mercy. Is that 
an architecture and design school specifically, or is it architecture and design a component of the of the curriculum at Detroit Mercy? It's a component of. It's a Jesuit university okay. uh, merged with Mercy College, uh, Sisters of Mercy, and so when. Uh, I was there, it was one of the three accredited schools of architecture in the state of Michigan. Um, and But I really wanted to kind of stay close to home, yet still be in a city environment. Um, and even though the city of Detroit looked very different back then, um, it was really connected to the city and nonprofits and community building. And that program um, and the, the dean and the professors and the academic structure of it just was a really great fit. That's great. One more question about that I may have missed. When you were talking about incorporating all this other hands-on work, like, like building things, was that part of the curriculum at Detroit Mercy or were these things you just sought out like to do as often as you could? It was sought out outside of the regular <laughs> architectural training and schooling so it was just a pursuit to you know fill time between semesters or do it on top of um, semesters you know one to put a little extra money in my pocket or to help uh, pay for school itself and limit the loan burden that was going to come with that education um, but uh, just also out of curiosity it was always changing it, it was never a static thing that I kind of kept coming back to. I was always trying to find something unique and different to to learn from. And so whether that was a month long or a, a few months long, um, they have a very, uh, University of Detroit Mercy has a really good co-op education program. It might oh, be okay. second oldest in the nation, and that's a requirement for graduation. So there were also opportunities to work in smaller architecture offices to satisfy that requirement. That sounds very much like a Jesuit thing, and God bless the Jesuits. They've they've educated and trained a lot of people, and some with a passion for architecture too. There's a guy in Akron area I know who he was, um, yes, similar background, although through the Greek Orthodox Church, and actually started to self study at a monastery, and he had such a passion, and he was so good at it. They asked. His his mentor said, you know, I think you probably ought to go to architecture school. Um, I don't know if he actually did, but he passed the RA exam first time through every single part, you know. So, yeah, that's really good. Um, I'm probably asking a question I know the answer to, but how how much does having some experience building things or liking to build things inform your architecture work. Do you did you find that that experience is pretty invaluable in how you uh, envision and design and develop construction drawings for certain things? Well, it definitely gave me a different perspective before I got really heavy into how those drawings get put together. I, I don't really feel you get a good idea of that until you get into your early years in office work. Um, but, you know, seeing it from the trade side, <laughs> especially I worked for a, a union electric um, shop that was working in industrial facilities and uh, just running parts and pieces, but also just being a set of helping hands when they needed it. And uh, seeing how the interpretive process of design and drawings get realistically applied to the environment, um, there always seemed to me to be a idealism in the drawings that wasn't always easy to figure out in the field. And, you know, fortunately, I think technologies helped us with that quite a bit. Um, more recently, but um, it always just put me in a place of humility that not everything we put down is going to go to plan until the people interpreting that design intent really, truly really are aligned with 
the objectives and, and really the goals of the design. And they don't always get that opportunity to have interaction with the architect either. There's usually layers of communication built up. And so it was just, uh, it was an interesting beginning and, and throughout, but um, those five years to really just see how other people reacted to the drawings, whether they respected them at all or not. Um, you know, I got to see a lot of things, but I also got to build some people skills along the way and um, ha have a lot of respect for those trades folks that really have a heavy responsibility to, you know, deliver the drawings in a certain, at a certain quality level. So, yeah, I, I appreciated it. I took it for what it was worth. And I, I think that when I've moved into making, uh, as I would consider it, even though I'm not the one physically making things, um, I, I think it's just being aware of how important certain lines are on the paper and, yeah. and alignments, orientations, and subtle things. And I really enjoy actually being out in the field during construction administration, um, trying to meet people, giving a little extra time just to see who the people are, what's the dynamic, what's the kind of general feeling or um, I guess if, if people feel invested in it or not yeah. <laughs> um, or, or what's important to me and trying to convey those in small doses um, yeah. to, to the tradespeople. I, I, honestly, I have a lot of respect for the trades in general and uh, really enjoy working with people that have built a true skill set um, and bring it to the table. So it's, uh, it is humbling. I think in, in some cases it's uh, constantly learning how buildings have gone together in the past and what we do with them. And I'm sure we'll touch on adaptive reuse a little bit, but I think there's also a very, I'm so much more curious about how those older buildings went together mm. um, before <laughs> we really dive into how we're going to adapt them. So I think it's anything it's also given me a sense of pause at the beginning of a project to not overimpose. Yeah. So I, I took a lot from that experience. It's really, I like some of the phrases. I, I like that interpretive phrase, you know, no matter how well a design is communicated in a set of construction documents or specifications, there's an interpretive element to that. And uh, yeah, you know, it takes the whole, it takes the whole village, doesn't it? It takes the whole team, the whole community <laughs> to get it built correctly. John, did you always know you wanted to be an architect? Or like, how did, when did you say, here you are living in the rural north end of, of, you know, Detroit Metro, and you wanted to be in the city, but like, were you like, yeah, I want to be an architect. Like, when did that happen? Pretty young. Um, I, I think uh, I've heard it on some of your previous podcasts even, but it was kind of through one of those grade school uh, career days. Uh, that was an option. I always enjoyed drawing. In fact, I always enjoyed drawing my room, what I would want it to be. I always drew in plan. Uh, that came natural to huh. me, which uh, I don't know if it was uh, how I organized certain Lego environments, but um, I could always draw in plan pretty well. I could, I could connect those dots. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was a young age. I, I would, if I had to guess, I'd probably say I was in third or fourth grade. Wow. And, uh, I think my parents still have a picture of me dressed up in a, in a, in a sport coat and, uh, which you'll rarely find me in now <laughs> and, uh, with a roll of drawings and a suitcase. So uh, that's awesome. The, the definition of the career, I'm sure, has has changed, but uh, it was a young age. A young age. Well, I don't know if it coincided with this. I, I remember in fourth grade specifically, I was at Augusta Grade School in um, Carroll County, Ohio, a little grade school that's now closed, and uh, that's when in the in the classroom, that's when they taught us two point perspective. And I remember drawing at my desk and thinking, 
man, I love this. And the teacher came by, he's like, hey, that's really good. How'd you figure that out? And it just made sense to me, like visualizing the depths and how things went together. And so that's great. In fact, as you said, I was always good drawing and plan. I digressed here for a second. I started drawing a floor plan while you were talking. So that's pretty good <laughs> stuff. Thanks. So from a young age, you wanted to be an architect. Okay. So we've set the table yeah. here. You're, you're an architect now, principal, 20 years going, 20 plus. Um, and so let's, let's segue a little bit to Detroit because Detroit has a certain image in the United States. And I just absolutely love some of the conversation we've had, you know, and I'm a, I live between Cleveland and Akron and I went to the University of Akron. So an urban school like you went to and, and absolutely loved being in the city of Akron. This was back in the days where if the wind blew the wrong way, when you woke up in the morning in your dorm room, you could taste the carbon black in your mouth from Goodyear and Goodrich and Firestone and all the plants just like belching out carbon black, you know? Um, and it, it quickly changed after that. But so I have some affinity to what you're saying. I was in living in the country and went into the city. But Detroit, like Cleveland, like Buffalo, like Pittsburgh, they all have certain reputations from those outside of them. But when you start talking, you, you stayed in Detroit, you love the city of Detroit, and you, you had a quote about the Detroit opportunity. So let's talk about the Detroit opportunity and what you're doing with architecture in the city of Detroit. Yeah, I think, uh, so going back to your kind of first comment there is the perception. And a lot of these Midwestern kind of industrialized cities went through transformations. And uh, I didn't kind of have to live through some of the more painful, you know, parts of that transformation um, in the 60s and 70s that happened specifically in Detroit and all the social impacts of uh, what happened um, there. But what I did get to work with when I, when I finally did get into Detroit Mercy's School of Architecture is a whole curriculum that was focused on working in the city, working within the context, the social class issues, working within, um, you know, what we saw as opportunities. I, I, I got to tell you, like, our school was not pessimistic. It was, it was always maybe blindly optimistic in all of these opportunities. And, and the community design center that was built into the school was extremely active in participating in the neighborhoods and with people who normally didn't have access to architecture or creative thinking. And so we, we never really let the percep outside perceptions weigh what we were doing. We, we always went in with what could we do as design professionals, as creative thinkers to make an impact and specifically a positive impact on people's sense of place, where they live, what their community is, even if that meant that it was relatively vacant or, um, you know, mis misused or mistrusted over the years. And, you know, we didn't try to dwell on that or other people's perceptions of that, but really just tried to see that opportunity in each of those projects in school or even at, at the firm now. Um, we, we tend to look at the context, not as a barrier, but as something we want to find opportunity in, how to find contextual fabric that is valuable. That's upon what our solution will be. And so we don't come to these projects with preconceived notions either, because uh, we're really trying to find authentic design solutions. Um, so whether that's in a neighborhood plan, or infill housing strategy, or site-by-site -site development, or even adaptive reuse of existing buildings. We're, we're always trying to look at the context that kind of gives us something more substantial to work with than just you know, the, the site dimensions or something very kind of superficial. Uh, not, not superficial, but uh, just simple. 
we're seeking something more complex and more interesting uh, to work with uh, within the city of Detroit. And I think that's where Detroit has an abundance of opportunities and not just the ones that I've seen or experienced in the last 20 years, but, you know, for the next 20 to 50 years, the, the opportunities seem to, you know, be just in abundance. Um, there's so much to do in the city. And, and that's very satisfying to me as someone who still has a good amount of my career ahead of me. Um, and I, I guess I'm one of those two that doesn't really see retirement as like a, as an accountant might. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's opportunities at all different scales and levels of complexity. And I, I think we really thrive in that environment um, at the firm. And, and we have a lot of like-minded people that uh, feel the same way and see those opportunities and, and don't get bogged down. And it's very easy to get bogged down in things that are other additionally challenging to the whole process. But, you know, we, we really try to see what we can do and move forward with that, make something um, happen for each of these projects. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's stay with this. So, Contrary to what some might think, if I've heard you correctly, and and when we talked prior, you, Mike, Michael, and you, and Michael's former partner and, and your team there, you're you're completely, not completely, but primarily centered on an architecture practice in and around the city and area of Detroit. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so you you talk about Detroit opportunity and. Maybe not a lot of people can see Detroit from the outside if they're from Austin or San Francisco or you know they've Boston or they've never been to um, Detroit. They've only seen it from a distance. Um, how do you, you? You mentioned that you didn't want to. We shouldn't leave it up to outsiders. I don't think you said it this way, but you don't want people to interpret Detroit in a whatever way they see fit or in a bad way, just based on certain things. So how does your architecture help inform that interpretive piece of Detroit? I'm probably not getting, am I being clear enough on that? Well, I think, you know, we just uh, try to keep a clear mind about what the objectives are for each project. So rather than being overly influenced by other things or perceptions of projects, because we do get a lot of, like, we're working on a really large adaptive reuse of a former industrial building right now uh, in the city, in a neighborhood that hasn't gotten a lot of investment. Um, you know, not like other neighborhoods that, you know, have really, you know, blown up in the last uh, five to 10 years. So, and, and we're doing it with, you know, a group of investors who are just really passionate about the project and really see, have a strong vision for how this 600,000 square foot industrial facility could be converted to housing. So we, we are influenced by how it's been done and successful in other cities. And those are things that we mm. have to bring to the conversation in Detroit and and a lot of folks say, you know, that's got too much environmental cleanup. It should just be demolished. And and yes, that's a very easy thing to say in 140 characters or less <laughs> and move on. But that doesn't mean that what it could be, uh, not just in the next five years when it goes through this transformation, but the whole neighborhood could you know, continue to build from how could that be a cap or other things. So, you know, we just, it's so much more complex than I think you would get out of, you know, a news story. And then that, that creates a perception for someone who hasn't given the city time or exploration. And so we just, we don't, you know, get burdened by that. We, uh, we know it, uh, we've been working in it. We've seen it transform slowly and now maybe a little more rapidly. And, and that's really where that kind of Detroit opportunity lies. It's a project by project basis. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, 
and it shouldn't because then I think it would almost be homogenous if it did. We think what makes Detroit and some other cities much more unique to visit and explore is their authenticity, mm -hmm. their unique history and how that's transformed into kind of more modern uses, mixing modern and historic uh, buildings and spaces and neighborhoods. I think it just makes for a much more vibrant uh, community uh, for all. And, and whether you're applying that thinking to a riverfront master plan and how accessible that riverfront should be to all residents uh, or, you know, a building and, and what public. Just so that the community can be folded into the conversation. We, we pride ourselves on having a very good uh, approach uh, and working with, you know, community stakeholders um, and being quite transparent about what we're intending to do and uh, gathering stakeholder input, not, not just listening to a developer, um, but the city is part of that as well. They've put together some really good frameworks for community engagement. And that's something I think that we do quite well, you know, within our architecture practice, not, not having to hire a consultant to come in and, and do that. Okay. So you're saying there's an, as it transforms gradually, there's an authenticity, there's an organicness to that that makes it more natural as opposed to just, you know, all this change being taken place at once. I like that. So you said that um, when you were talking to me that you're seeing some momentum, you, you, you were just mentioned in that last conversation that, you know, you've, you've seen some of this transformation and I think more rapidly, in the more recent past. So what is that, what is some of that, before we get into some of the specific discussions about architecture and adaptive reuse further, what's some of the momentum and transformation look like in Detroit? Or, or how are you seeing, like you said, there's some momentum there. You're saying there's more people catching the vision of, hey, we can make this city something, something new, not necessarily better, but continue to transform and work with neighborhoods and city to keep, you know, building Detroit now and for the future? Yeah, I think when I, when I consider momentum, I look at um, what it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago in school when I was, you know, visiting sites and meeting people. And, you know, there, there were nights you could roll a bowling ball down the street and not hit a thing. Um, and, we're talking like right through the central business core. So yeah. um, when I think about how it's changed and the momentum, I'm thinking about it over a pretty long period of time, but you know, more recently the institutions that have made investments, not just in their campuses, but in true community building efforts. So hospitals or uh, colleges and universities, um, how private investors have brought in uh, an approach to um, neighborhood planning and not not just for their own financial benefit, but I'm sure that's a big piece of it, but how they've stitched together a lot of ideas in to be broader than just a single project or investment. And some of those people that have stayed have really seen that change and the momentum that's building off of their successful investments and developments kind of creates a wave of momentum, if you will, for uh, other investors and other developers and other nonprofits. And, you know, the whole kind of, the, the amount of architectural and planning work that we can do now just seems much more broad. There's so much more opportunity in the market for those reasons. And, and it's not just one or two folks, although I think some rise to the top and get more news stories than others, but there's a lot going on. We work in the nonprofit realm. We work, you know, in the private development realm and mixed use and multifamily uh, housing right now is just as relevant in Detroit as it is anywhere else in the country. And, you know, we're in a good position to continue doing that work, uh, you know, whether that's HUD financed or MISHTA financed or 
um, adaptive reuse housing even. So we're, we're um, you know, building our kind of architectural practice around kind of hospitality housing and adaptive reuse. And it, it touches so many different things at so many different scales. But the momentum is really something we're, we've been seeing and working, you know, on for almost a, man, almost a decade now. Hmm. Feels like there's been some pretty constant growth for about that long. Um, and, and it's great because it, it seems to <laughs> continue even with some of the economic news we hear nowadays. Um, it doesn't seem to be slowing down and we really hope that it just becomes more manageable um, rather than a true downturn. But um, yeah, well, the beauty is when people have cash, when they have private money um, and they want to deploy it, they can deploy it however they want to, regardless. Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, instead of financing it through the bank, they may self-finance or whatever that is. I know, I know the Illich family and Dan Gilbert are big, you know, have led the way in a lot of ways, but um, there's obviously got to be many other high net worth people. And then folks that fly under the radar that still have significant dollars. Otherwise you wouldn't be seeing that level of momentum. Right. Right. And I think what they've done is they've proved that investment here can be done and, mm. and it brings probably people that hadn't looked at Detroit mm-hmm. in some time, even if they lived outside of the Metro Detroit area, they just didn't want to, you know, invest in the city. I, I think it's changed a lot of points of view and um, brought more interested people to the city. And, and that's where we might find ourselves partnering with other architecture firms that aren't familiar with the city mm-hmm. of Detroit and be a partner for them when, when they are kind of tied or have a relationship with someone who wants to do something here you know, we've found ourselves to be in that position uh, a few times and currently, and that's, that's a, in a way I see that as a different type of opportunity where we're, we're able to find, you know, more people that are able to participate. It, it used to be that there were a lot of great ideas, but they never had like a way to connect themselves together to make or sustain themselves as an idea or a concept. And it would either fizzle out or it would become something that didn't last very long. And and the person or people within that project or that group couldn't sustain that concept. um, Or, or it didn't, it didn't build into a bigger piece of a plan and where we'd see big plans, but they weren't implementable. Yeah. And so it was, over time, I think they finally found a way to coexist. And then uh, there became a good amount of investment locally that just, uh, you know, push, push things to a level that made it uh, desirable to, to take a second look at the city. And, you know, we were always looking at it that way. So we found ourselves in a, in a good position to participate. And, you know, it's, for our firm, it's all relationships. So maybe that's why our, our work also really focuses on Detroit, because that's where the strength of our relationships lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, if when we do work out of state or kind of out in different areas of Michigan, it's usually because we have relationships formed, you know, in Southeast Michigan. And that's always kind of coming back to the city work. Uh, it, it ebbs and flows, but it's, um, yeah. that's kind of where, where we're rooted. That's, and we think we can apply that thinking and that uh, authentic design approach projects wherever uh, these folks take us. Um, and it's a lot of fun uh, to do that. Yeah. How, how much do you and Michael, um, or Michael himself, I, I guess it depends on who does what there. Um, well, let me see, I've got two questions. What's the... What's the local political environment like in terms of its um, uh, ability to help facilitate development and building in the the city fathers and mothers there, the the government? And how much 
collaboration is there with the zoning and planning and or building departments with you guys and the local architecture community? Well, it's been improving. Uh, it's definitely different than what it used to be. Um, it still has uh, the local political government. They have, uh, you know, from the mayor's office or the Economic Growth Corporation or the Downtown Development Authority, they have mechanisms to attract people. But, you know, really seeing, you know, the true opportunities or values within certain developments, they might, you know, they're only as good as their staff's knowledge. So um, I think there have been architects and planners that have come into those departments now that are a little more professionally um, experienced. So that that wasn't so much before. Um, mm -hmm. So when I say uh, that was probably about eight years ago or so, seven years ago. Um, so we've definitely seen a lot of maturity in those departments and business attraction and development in pretty short amount of time. Um, so I think I think the city's getting much better at they have a one event that I think is pretty interesting that we do is um, the mayor hosts a um, kind of a welcoming back. I forget what he calls it. Um, every year, but it's for people who might have left um, to pursue business ventures in, in other cities, states, or countries, and they're coming back to do something unique in Detroit. Um, I think he calls it his homecoming event. And so e even if those don't manifest themselves into true projects, I think it's it's a nice opportunity for people to kind of come back uh, to the city. And so they're, they're thinking a little outside of the box and um, but I, I think within the staff levels of Historic District Commission Planning Department, uh, there's good representation professionally in those. And um, it's still a little loosely structured, but there's a, there's a familiarity we have with how it's evolved that really appreciates some of the small things <laughs> that they've overcome mm. um, and, and put some structures around. But I think it's, it's been, it's definitely changed pretty significantly if I only look back eight years. Hmm. And, and it's a good thing. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. Michael, like, how are, how are we involved in it? I, we, we find our opportunities to, you know, go to battle for a zoning change or, or something specific, but it, it usually, it usually comes because of a certain planning effort or because of a certain um, project specific or an objective that we found is within, you know, the community's really looking for X, Y, and Z to be a priority. And, and maybe the planning department hasn't had the opportunity to go work with that neighborhood yet. And so there's still a continuing evolution of neighborhood priorities and planning. And, I think what I like about the planning department's approach right now is that they're not just kind of washing everyone into the same boat of goals and objectives. They're really allowing each neighborhood and community to kind of have its own um, input and structure and even how avenues and boulevards could be zoned and be more of a business attraction. Um, they, they have, you know, zoning can get pretty specific in, in those different neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of, you know, participation, whether we're working for someone in that district or we're representing the neighborhood itself, you know, we have the ability to have a voice. And I, I think that's a really good start uh, to having an impact. But, you know, we're usually very focused on the work in front of us and how we can make small differences. But we've participated in a lot of zoning and uh just process change mm -hmm. um the city's been pretty open to the community at large for input so that's been 
it's been good. It's been challenging too. You know, there's a lot of subtlety to that mm -hmm. that uh, takes a long time to see that through and to see change mm -hmm. and really know if it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. You, you know, you really have a long-term perspective. You can hear it in everything you talk about and that's rare. You're, you have that long-term patience, which is a really good, um, that's a very um, noble quality. Let's talk about some, you have a few hot points. I'm trying to lace a few things together here. Um, so you talked about that um, sometimes when you're working with an existing building, a historic building, or just an existing building, it's easier to just consider new rather than redoing or adaptive reuse. Um, and I love a, a statement you made to me as we were getting ready for this, where you talked about how the design is going to reveal itself. So I'm, I'm lacing a few things together to try to kind of ask a question or introduce a topic on just form of architecture. You're, you're focused more on existing building adaptive reuse, single family, multifamily, mixed use hospitality, et cetera, and curating that work. Um, so maybe what's an example of that? How do you, how does a design quote reveal itself so you're not forcing the building into a certain form? And then what's, what drives your passion for adaptive reuse of existing buildings as opposed to just wiping it down and building something new? There's a number of questions there, but they all relate one to the other. Yeah, I think it's a multi-layered question. It was a great conversation too leading up to this um, that we had when we were talking about this. So one of the projects I'll always come back to now because it was so satisfying was the Detroit Foundation Hotel, which was a um, an adaptive reuse, historic tax credit renovation of the former uh, fire department headquarters in the city of Detroit and adjacent uh, kind of gaslight building, um, where we combined the two buildings to create a um, 100 key boutique hotel and restaurant for um, the Aparium Hotel Group as the operator. And what was really fascinating, I guess this is where the design reveals itself, is that if we imposed something that just met the pro forma requirements, it would have turned out much differently. The history of that building, the nostalgia, the detail, the elements that made it a unique building in the city already and very identifiable, it allowed us to kind of take pause, do more research into the valuable, the value of those materials, the craft that was done. And this is a, this is a building, a neoclassical terracotta uh, five-story firehouse from the 1920s. Hmm. And you know, the terracotta was mostly cataloged, but there were firemen heads and there were carved initials that we cleaned and just all the processes that it takes to meet um, the National Park Service requirements for restoration. It can't be a process that is overimposing. Yes, did we have to find different ways to utilize the floor plates to maximize the unit or the key count? Yes. Absolutely, but we put an obscene amount of time into making sure that that was done in a way that you could still tour someone through the building at the end of the project and they still recognize the firehouse. Uh -huh. like it, there were stories upon stories of firemen who came back after retirement who knew the building as their day-to-day workplace <laughs> and everything that I'm sure came along with being a fireman <laughs> in, in those decades. Um, but they were really moved that it wasn't overly changed. And we always, we always would bug them because they all took their brass doorknobs with them. I don't know if it was a retirement gift or a moving thing, but we wanted to actually cast 
some of their original doorknobs. So we could never get one from anybody <laughs> in the player department. But it was very satisfying to give this building a second lease on life and one that's public. You know, it's very accessible, which is also very satisfying architecturally that we created a place that people can enjoy, that my parents can come and visit. It's not always the case uh, for a lot of our projects. Mm -hmm. So it kind of sustained itself as a, as a cornerstone uh, in downtown Detroit. And it proved this kind of boutique hotel concept too, that's been really successfully um, done uh, in other locations in the city. And, and yes, it took a long time, but even as the materials were salvaged and repurposed in different ways, or art was in, you know, brought in or custom lighting was brought into the design, that place is very special. And I, and I say it because it's not special because we came to it with our toolbox of solutions and imposed that mm. we really had to go through a pretty uh, time <laughs> intensive, you know, research pro process. And uh, honestly, the misfortune of the city of Detroit going into bankruptcy afforded us a little extra time to do that. So this was a public sale of a building. I think it was the last public sale of property in the city of Detroit uh, before the city entered bankruptcy. And then it had to go through a, a process of auditing by the state uh, in order for the sale to conclude. So um, that time kind of very fortunate for us, you know, we could afford a little extra time to do that work. Um, and that, when was that? Paid dividends. So it's just, it's now been open five years. So it opened in May of 2017. Okay. And Sorry we started working on it in 2012. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I was really curious as to how recent that sure. was. It's pretty recent. Right. Yep. Yeah. So a building salvaged from the 20s and that had some historic value and through a bankruptcy from the city, that's uh, that that's good that it survived. I like how you talked about you, you didn't bring your you know your bag of tools, your your tool chest to to bear on the building. You allowed the building to kind of reveal itself and to work adaptively with it. That's a really great example. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. You mentioned terracotta. Of course, you know I'm a big facade guy, building envelope, building enclosure guy, um, not just glass and metal, although I like that, but, um, you know, masonry and terracotta and GFRC and UHPC and all these different forms in our, of course, in our consulting side, we get into some historic buildings as well with stone and masonry and historic windows and things. Um, probably asking a pretty general question, maybe has, how much of the facade renovation, facade work do you get into and how much of that informs the architecture and adaptive reuse or how much do you inform it? Do you try to work with that as well? Well, it's, it's the most public and seen element, you know, it's, it's what people, most people would identify a building by. So it's, it's important. It carries, some of the most risk on a project with water and air infiltration. Um, so I think facades are very important, cladding being a key part of that. And, you know, I really value those historic facades because they are built and detailed so simply, um, yet so effectively. Hmm. Uh, I think the hard part is modernizing them uh, with the energy codes. Uh, nowadays, and the thermal brakes are just you know, the, the radiator buildings, essentially, so or steam buildings, and they're they're very different when you adapt them to a more modern HVAC system. So I I appreciate the detail and the craft that went into those facades. I I guess our work in multifamily, we don't get to go that far with facade design. I think your experiences um, in facade and cladding are quite different than ours. 
but um, that doesn't mean that we're trying to find you know, interesting ways to make architectural expressions on the outside of the buildings. But I always find those exteriors are quite important because that is the impression upon the community. Um, and so whether we're preserving one or, or even changing them, if we have good bones, yet we need to do modern windows and um, or modern rooftops. A lot of, a lot of people here, I'm sure mm -hmm. in your area too, are seeking that outdoor amenity space um, mm -hmm. all too often. So uh, roofs and, and exterior walls are a big, big piece of any renovation right now. What about, you mentioned historic windows, you know, you can get them from a variety of places. Are you, mm -hmm. are you guys specifying, um, do you get into wood and metal historic window? Um, uh, yeah, matching? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the preference is to first see if you can use the authentic materials and if you can't, uh, then what is the alternative? So we do find ourselves on lower rise called Main Street, three-story buildings uh, using wood windows or aluminum clad wood windows. Um, but uh, for instance, factory uh, style aluminum windows, we are doing a lot of. And there's a few manufacturers that are really good at it. And um, fortunately they, they have done a lot of work in the city and are very familiar with the requirements. I, I think windows might be one of the most talked about things in the historic district really? commission in the city of Detroit. There's just a lot of care and detail um, where the, the building of the 20s, teens and 20s, the growth of the city of Detroit was so great both in its beautiful Art Deco examples, mm -hmm. neoclassical, neo-Gothic. Neo um, there's so many great examples of stylistic architecture from that period and growth that the those details, masonry, terracotta, stone, but windows specifically, there's so many different types yeah. that each one gets looked at quite closely for sight lines and mm -hmm all those great custom trim uh, panning details. Yeah. And, and they have to be executed well. Our, our, our group does not let anything go <laughs> at the city level. And maybe it, to a certain point, you know, more strict than the national. Um, so we know we have to do a lot of due diligence on, on glazing for historic. Yeah. yeah. Have you guys, um, have you seen any or specified any powder-coated, painted um, steel windows with insulated glass? You know, that that look? We know of, I know of one project that has done that in downtown. Mm -hmm. um, it's a beautiful renovation of an office building and got it really heavily reworked. And they used, um, steel windows. I, I couldn't tell you if it was one, if it was hopes mm -hmm. um, for I just don't know for sure, but yeah, you know, we've seen a little of everything. That's a very unique solution that quite, quite original, kind of like going back to terracotta. Yeah. You know, there's only going to be a couple places you're going to get that from now. And that's what makes GFRC so popular. Yeah, you've met, and Hopes is one of them. I know we did some work with Critall in the past, which is a UK company, yeah. and um, their engineering manager, who had been there 40 years, joked with me at one point. I, 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 if anybody from the UK is listening, which we do have some listeners from there, I'll probably misquote the period, but he's, remember him telling me, well, we've been around since eight, we've only been around since 1880s, John. We're a really young company in Britain. They <laughs> can. <laughs> Yeah, it's a whole different. He's like, yeah, we're we're young. There's companies that are 400 years old here, you know. <laughs> Again, yeah, welcome to America, you know. Um, totally different perspective on history, right? Yeah, but I I I don't know. I like all forms of windows, of course, but there's a particular um, beauty 
to that low profile powder coated painted steel window with the insulated glass and um, even even duplicating or created the leaded caming details on some historic windows you know with insulated glass and um, you know occasionally a, a full profile like lead Munton bar in between um, people don't realize the nuance there but um, yeah, like Yale, for instance, happens to have been around for a while. And as they replace windows, it's extremely important that they match exactly, almost as exactly as possible to the historic replacement. But of course, with the U value and insulated properties yeah. of, of now, because to your point, we could probably do a whole podcast on it. But if you're looking at a masonry wall, um, brick and masonry, and now you're trying to meet the um, the code, the ASHRAE code, and you know U value and insulating and, and, and air infiltration standards, air barrier standards. That that can be tough. That can create some real challenges. Absolutely, or very high operating costs. Yeah, uh, to where you know they don't they are not affordable <laughs> to the end user or, or the building operator manager. So we, we really look at that closely. It's not something you can really say that we've got the fix for. I'm always curious looking at different options um, kind of to how to solve that envelope problem on a historic building. Yeah. John, as we start coming to the end here, um, when I listen to you talk, I, you know, you've been at this over 20 years, but you have such a long-term perspective, which is really refreshing. In, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like you sound like you're just getting started. Is that a fair <laughs> statement? You sound like the eternal optimist, like I'm just getting started. You sound like one of those guys, like the best is yet to come. Is that a fair statement? I think so. Um, just because I'm, I'm constantly surprised at what we're the projects that we're being asked to be a part of, and it's very humbling. It's very we take it with a you know a lot of pride. But I look out like we'll get up on the rooftop of a seventeen-story building and we'll look around. And immediately we're looking at all the work that still needs to be done. And we're referencing historic Sanborn or aerial imagery that just shows how dense wow. and how unbelievably energized these neighborhoods must have been to be packed at the density they used to be. Yeah. And I, I think when we're constantly reflecting back on the history and looking forward to what's happening or what's happening now and then looking forward to what we're involved in or we know what's kind of where things are moving. You know, there's just so much opportunity. Um, it's such a big city mm -hmm. and a lot of people, I don't think understand how large and dense it was. And so when we think about how far it's declined, um, we're looking back at those images and the history of the city and, and maybe that's why my perspective is a little bit more long-term because I, I'm constantly looking back a hundred years, um, wow. looking, you know, going, going into research about, you know, what this building was as part of the, you know, Cadillac or uh, Ford assembly line story. And, and so we're, we're constantly reminded of our own heritage in that research. And so I, I always see it as, yeah, there's a lot more to do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to be in a place that has that opportunity. And it's not a place that's been developed. And we're not trying to analyze the building from the 70s and what we're going to do with it. We're actually looking at turn of the century buildings. Wow. So. John, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot. It's just if you do happen to know this, like when you talk about how dense it is and when you look out, do you know how many four and five, like five story and above buildings in Detroit. I know there's hundreds. Are there thought like, do you know how many buildings have they taken an inventory? For instance, 
Manhattan, New York City has four, like 4,500 buildings of, I think it's five stories and up, more than any city in North America. Second is Toronto, and they're moving quickly, but they have about half of that number. And then it drops down pretty quick, meaning like if Chicago, I think, has 900 or so, they could build 50 buildings a year for the next 50 years. And if New York never built another building, they still wouldn't catch up to Manhattan. That's how dense it wow. is. Do you have any idea of how, I mean, Detroit is a big city. Do you have any idea how many buildings are in that category? I mean, I would have to guess that we'd be in the lower hundreds, but I'd really have to look into that. I've, I've never tried to quantify that, and I don't know if I've seen it mm -hmm. uh, overly published or bulleted or headlined in a, in a report. Yeah, that's probably um, true, though. It probably is in the mid to lower hundreds because you know the it go you know it's like new york chicago san francisco i know seattle's catching up I, I don't have the inventory now don't don't audience don't fact check me on that please um <laughs> but, but john i will tell you like detroit or the state of michigan we classify things differently though high rise in the Michigan building code is actually six stories and higher. Okay. So mid rise is five or lower. Uh, so we have a, a lower threshold than I think almost every other state building code. Huh. And I'm not too sure exactly why that is. Um, it's usually the first thing we figure out if someone's coming from out of town mm -hmm. uh, to look at a mixed use building. Is Interesting. If they're coming in at seven stories, we have to correct them pretty quickly so they don't fall into high <laughs> So they don't call it a mid rise, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a Michigan high rise there, buddy. Yeah. Which I like that. Not something we're proud of, but uh hey, it's, it's one man's one man's mid rise is another man's high rise, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like uh an acre of ground in downtown Detroit is a lot of ground. An acre of ground in, in western South Dakota is a postage stamp. You're not even on the map, right? Unless you have a thousand <laughs> acres. It's all relative, right? Exactly. So, that's good. We're at, we're a little over an hour here, John. Um, it's been pretty fascinating to walk through some of these things. Um, anything else you'd like to say or mention before signing off? Anything you missed uh, related to Detroit Opportunity or any of those any of those things you guys do that you'd like to like to mention before we close? Well, I just think we're we're really passionate about the city of what it was and what it's going to become. And we're really active in that. And uh, I really appreciate you giving me a little bit of time to talk about it. I'm sure we could dive deeper into a lot of different topics. And I'd be happy to do that with you, John, if you ever needed it. But I would just, uh, you know, encourage, you know, folks from your listening audience to, to take a, take a look at the city of Detroit and kind of, how much it's transformed in a short period of time and and um, possibly uh, give it a second look and give it a, a even a vacation. Uh, we've heard a lot of people kind of, I think it was just listed on one of Time's most interesting places. So um, it, I think a lot of that has to do with the kind of modern transformations of late, but uh, it's, a, it's a great city. We love it and we love participating in it and, and uh, having a good time. And it, yes, uh, I'm sure the best is still yet to come, John. <laughs> I like that. I think you got to have that. Hey, what? what's the alternative, right? We all have our bad days. I, I had a rough morning this morning, just waking up with my mindset today. It was like a little off and I'm thinking, well, what's the alternative? Do we want to say the worst is yet to come? unhealthiness is only going to get worse. The pie is smaller. I, I just choose to not live that way. I want to say like the pie can get bigger, law of economics. There's opportunity for everyone. Okay. I know there's disparity and there's racism and there's classism. I don't want to get into that. I get it, but I, I'd rather say the best is yet to come. And that takes all kinds of different forms. Probably shouldn't have even opened up the lid on that box here at the end. <laughs> but um, I like that mindset. Um, you know, I got to say, I love flying from Cleveland to Detroit. Detroit to Cleveland is like the world's shortest flight. Okay. You, 
you sit longer on the tarmac that like it's like a 20 minute flight or 18 minute flight and it's great on the way out because like if i fly delta there's no hardly any direct flights if i'm going to seattle or salt lake city or san francisco if i've flying delta um and it's been a while with COVID and all but i'll either go through detroit or minneapolis and i love flying through detroit on the way out because it's like a warm-up you know you get on the plane you boop, over the lake and you know it's 45 minutes you're from one terminal to the other. And then you got a nice long flight. I hate it on the way back. So you'll fly like from Seattle to Detroit and you get off the plane, it's been four and a half hours. You just want to get home. And now it's, you know, it's 10 at night and now you got to get on another plane, sit on the tarmac, fly over Lake Erie, <laughs> land in Cleveland. It's like, can't we just go the rest of the way? Just drop us Clevelanders <laughs> off. And then like, just, just circle around, touchdown let us off and then fly back all the michigan people you know so. well you should you should you should come into downtown stay the night at a great hotel the, the fire the fire continue place. your trip the next morning yeah exactly i'm gonna come visit you and michael sometime and i'm gonna stay overnight in that repurposed hotel that you talked about it sounds fantastic it's got a great working area on the ground floor, and it's probably the city's best coffee shop, in my opinion. So oh, that's uh, then it's got to be a must. Yeah, and it's got a restaurant yeah. in it too. Yeah, it has, it has a um, uh, kind of a Detroit native who trained and received two Michelin stars in Chicago. Actually, came Whoa. back Whoa. with his wife to do the restaurant. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's called One Hundred One Hundred Key. It's. It's a hundred key hotel. That's just kind of our nomenclature for how many guest rooms are in it, but it's I called see. the foundation hotel. Ladies and gentlemen, rush to the foundation hotel. I'm, I'm intrigued now because it's got <laughs> a great coffee place. My wife loves that. We're always looking for the best spot. Michelin two-star, at least four, a Michelin two-star chef boutique hotel. Yeah, that, that sounds great. That's a great way to close. I'm really glad in, in that you guys worked on that. That's a great example. We can look that up. But uh, yeah, I'd love to get up there and visit you and Michael sometime and meet you guys in person rather in, than in two dimensions. But it's still been good to talk in two dimensions here on Zoom. There's been a little bit of sound blip here and there to the for the audience, but not over the last um, significant portion of the podcast. So I, I think we'll be good. John, I've gone on long enough. You've been a great guest. I really appreciate you and what you represent there and your story. Perhaps if we talk again on the podcast, we could single out a specific project or type of project and the architecture involved in that, how that connects to design and engineering and trade and zoning and planning and all those things. You you mentioned earlier on community and to me, so much about building and architecture is about representing community or building community. And in the end, I, I'm passionate about this all the time. We are all building community or not building community. That's so paramount. We're all um, meant to live in and around community. And I just love the way building and architecture and landscape architecture and interior stuff, it can just help create such an attractive environment as opposed to a dysfunctional and terrible environment. So it's really important work. Thanks for that, John. Thanks for your work. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, you have just listened to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast with my guest, John Skoke, architect with Macintosh Boris. I'm John Wheaton. It's been great to have you. We're signing off now. Have a great day.